0: Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, each and every time we open your word together, we are aware of our need and dependence upon you for everything. We're grateful that we have the Spirit to illumine our minds and our understanding, that you want us to know you, that you want us to understand you, that you want us to live as you would have us live, that your name would be glorified and uplifted in the eyes and in the minds of others who may not know you, that they would see you for who you are. You have left us here for a time to be a reflection of your glory, and we want to be faithful in that, Lord, so teach us tonight as we think about your word, as you Show us Yourself, help us to understand these things that we might be faithful children of Yours, that Your name would be uplifted, that Your Son would be glorified, and ultimately that You would be glorified. So we pray these things in His name, Amen. Well, I want us to take our Bibles tonight again and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, I want to begin once again by reading a significant portion of this text for us. And I was thinking about that initially that some of you may want to know why we do that. I do that for a couple of reasons oftentimes when I begin to preach reading the text first. For one reason it helps us get our minds on track as to what we are about to study. We have been Away from this text for some time, at the very least several hours, at the very most several days, and so we need a short time to just reacquaint ourselves with what is here. So, reading it gets us reoriented to that, but also I read it because there's no better tool in the divine arsenal of God for shaping our minds than simply just allowing the Word of God to be heard. Out loud. Uh, Paul said to Timothy uh, in his ministry that when Timothy was to be left on the scene after Paul was gone, that he should make it a priority within his pastoral ministry to uh, read the Scriptures, to give attention to the public reading of Scriptures and to exhortation and teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, all of us know faith comes by hearing hearing by the Word of God. And so it's with that in mind that I read the Scriptures to us as we begin our time of study together when we come together to open the Word of God. So if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 13, I want to read for us again uh, this portion of Scripture that we were in last time so that we can be reacquainted and allow God to speak to us. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus... Knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments, and taking his towel, he girded himself about. And then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined again at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and lifted up his, has lifted up his heel against me. And from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. If you were here last Sunday evening, you'll remember that I said this section of John's Gospel, chapter 13 through chapter 17, is strictly for us as God's children for the believer. Not that someone couldn't glean principles from it in a general sense and try to apply those things to their life, albeit not unto salvation or not from a heart that would honor to God. But these are words for God's children, those who know God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we need to pay extreme close attention to what is said because these are words for those who were. In the world. These are the ones who were in the world. He loved his own who were in the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were all by nature children of wrath. He goes on to say that although that was our condition, because of God's mercy, he bestowed on us. His love in Christ. Although God loves all men, as I said last Lord's Day, in some ways He loves His own in a very special way. So, as I said last time, the primary message of this section here is for Christians. And as Christians, we can have true and lasting peace. In fact, we have peace, as we learned this morning, we have a condition of peace, and Jesus will say to his disciples here, and he's saying to us, my peace I give you, we have lasting peace, no matter what is taking place in life, but that kind of peace comes from understanding the love of God, exercising it in our lives, and so The driving theme of chapters 13 through 17 is this grand theme of love. In fact, Jesus says in verse 34 and 35 of this very chapter, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. It wasn't a new thing in the sense that they never heard that reality, never heard God say love someone else, but... You're going to love like I love, that you love one another even as I loved you, that you also love one another. Why? Because this is your testimony. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it is the characteristic of one who is a true disciple of Jesus Christ, this exercising and this living out and this action of love. And it is because of God's love that we can do that, and it's because of God's love for us that we have, in fact, peace with God. Because of God's love, because of the peace that we have with God, we can have peace in whatever circumstance of life we're in. And so Christ, you notice here in this chapter, on the night before His death, spends His time teaching those who were His own about love. The final phrase in verse 1 becomes the theme of the content of the final hours of Christ on earth. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That means that He loved perfectly as we learned last time. We, from time to time, sing a hymn. One of the hymn writer said it this way, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. That is the reality of what we know from God. The love of God is indeed perfect. And so we have to look intently at what God is saying here about that to us so that we know how to love one another. over the next several times we're together, I want us to examine Christ's teaching on love. And I want us to examine it from several different vantage points, if you will. I'll just list the ones that, that I see... Here in chapter 13, and I'll give us more as we move on through 14, 15, 16, 17. But for us to understand this love and how it works itself out in our lives, or how it ought to be working itself out in our lives, we, we're going to see love these from these four vantage points. We're going to see, first of all, love demonstrated. Love demonstrated, verses 2 through 11. Then we're going to see love explained. Love Explained, verses 12 through 20. And then third, we're going to see in chapter 13, Love Spurned. Love Spurned, verses 21 to 30. And then finally, Love Commanded, verses 31 to 38. So these are the vantage points, at least from the start, we're going to get this reality of Jesus' love and what it ought to be and mean for us. These are the four headings, demonstrated, explained, spurned, and commanded. Now just a side note, and just to show you the importance of that topic to Christ throughout John's record of his life on this earth, you may be interested to know that the word love is mentioned 219 times in the entire New Testament. You may have not counted those at some point, but that's how many there are, right? I have a nice little computer program. I can type that in and it tells me exactly how many times that word is used. So don't think I'm really smart to spend time just counting every page. The only, only 30 times, however, is it found in the Gospel of John. So 219 times the entire New Testament, 30 times here in the Gospel of John. And you may ask, well, what is the significance of that then? Why is that so significant? Because of those 30 times that it's found in the Gospel of John, 20 of the 30 times is found right here in chapter 13 through 17. So you have 21 chapters of the Gospel of John, 30 times the word of love is, and in all of the other chapters other than 13 through 17, it's only listed 10 times. 20 times is right here in chapter 13 through 17. Now, just by way of comparison, it's only mentioned 27 times in all of the other three Gospels put together. And just when you thought you might find it mentioned most in the place where we tend to run most when we think about love, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13... Right? Anytime we want to talk about love, you go to a wedding, somebody reads about love. They always go to John they always go to First Corinthians chapter thirteen and read that chapter. But it's only mentioned by Paul sixteen times in the entire book of First Corinthians. In fact, the place that we find this subject mentioned most is not in the Gospels at all. It is not in the Pauline epistles at all. It's not mentioned most in the book of Hebrews or the book of James or the books of 1 and 2 Peter. The place that you find it the most is in a very small epistle that John wrote, First John. It's mentioned 36 times in 1 John, and there's only 105 verses in that book. And the question that comes to mind is, why does John speak so much about love in that book? Listen, you want to show somebody what love looks like? Don't go to 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 John. John speaks about love there. Why? Because it is a book about what it means to be and live as a Christian. John says in John chapter 5 and verse 13 of 1 John, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Christians, those who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. I wrote this to you. And I want you to know something. I wrote it so that you might know that you have eternal life. So I wrote it so that you might be seated and settled in your assurance in your faith in Jesus Christ. That's one point and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And John, throughout the book, writes about love. So this is the whole point. Successful living in the Christian life and proof that one is truly a son of the Master is seen in action. It's seen in love. This is why Christ focuses His final words, I believe, to those who would carry on after He's physically gone. This is the foundation of the church. This is the men whom He chose. These are those who who the church uh, upon Christ and the testimony of Christ will be built. He wants them to understand this reality of love and what it looks like in life. So that's what I want us to see as we look at this. So let's begin to see then this love demonstrated, demonstrated. It has been said, we hear it all the time, actions speak louder than words. And that may be mostly true. Sometimes actions don't speak as loud as we'd like them to speak, but in some cases the only thing that will speak are actions. I was reading recently a fictitious story that I read some time ago that kind of illustrates that reality. It said this, that there was a farmer one day who was stuck in the middle of a dirt road because his donkey that was pulling the wagon had just decided to stop pulling. And so he was having difficulty convincing his donkey to get moving again. And he was a very gentle man And he tried to speak to the donkey gently, and then he began to get louder and louder and louder. And speaking to the donkey in a loud voice, the donkey just stood there unwilling to be persuaded by the farmer. In the meantime, another man comes down the road and asks the farmer if he needs some help. The farmer says, well, I sure could use it, but I don't think you'll do anything more than I have. I've been yelling at this stupid animal for over an hour, and he just won't move. Parents, don't think about your kids. Don't do it. The farmer said, I can fix that. He went over to the side of the road, picked up an old tree branch to use as a club, hit the donkey right between the eyes, and then said, let's go. The donkey got up and began to walk. The old farmer said, I don't get it. I yelled at him for the better part of an hour. He wouldn't move, and you spoke to him in a normal voice, and he's moving. The guy said, that's true, but first I got his attention. I think that's the way it is with us, isn't it? That's the way it is with us as Christians. Oftentimes we'll learn just with words, but other times we need to have our attention. God needs to get our attention get it fixed upon what he's saying. Sometimes we'll talk to each other in the Christian life and and we'll we'll listen to that, we'll hear that. And other times that person who's loving us needs to get our attention. They need to hit us right between the eyes with a two-by-four. Jesus here doesn't begin to teach with words. Rather, through the haze and fog that might be going through the disciples' minds as they're thinking about the inevitable to come, Christ hits them right between the eyes with his action. Rather than just tell us that he loves us or tells us to love, he shows us what that means. He shows us what he means by it and how we are empowered to go out and do the same thing. To show this actually being lived out in our lives. And notice, I just want to focus our attention tonight just on verses 1 to 4. Look at what this says. Because so, sometimes we read this and we just pass right on by. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We talked about that part last night, and during the, or last time, and during the supper... The devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, taking his towel, he girded himself. About, this is most incredible to us, or it ought to be. Because the most incredible truth about these verses is that in spite of all that is happening, in spite of all that is about to happen in Jesus Christ's life, in spite of all the supposed defeat that was about to take place before the Jewish people, right? Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross, he's going to hang on the cross, and the Jews are going to think, we won. Those who were killing Christ are going to think, it's over, it's done, this, this guy is off the scene. All of that is about to happen and Christ still chooses to love. Notice John tells us that Christ, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loves them to the end. And of course you get that little... Vignette, during the supper the devil had already put into the heart of Judas of Simon to betray him. And Jesus, there's that word again, knowing, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Jesus, knowing that it was his hour to leave, knowing that Judas was doing what he's doing, knowing that he came from God and he's going back to God, knowing all of that circling around in him, Jesus chooses to love. That, frankly, amazes me. That amazes me. Christ, being God in the flesh, Christ has full knowledge that He is just hours from the most brutal death known to man. And He doesn't just say, Guys, I love you. No, He shows it in action in a simple yet profound way. So Christ, being fully knowledgeable that He had been given everything by the Father, all power, all dominion, all the hosts of heaven at His disposal, He could call them at any moment the power to give, the power to take, and yet He loves in action. You see, I believe that's the two by four right between our eyes. That's the two-by-four that ought to get our attention when you read this text. Christ wants to teach us about love. But first, He needs to get our attention. And so John says, listen, Christ's love is first demonstrated through the foundation of knowledge. Christ knew much more than you could ever know by way of His knowledge of what is to come and His omniscience to know because He is God. So he's not meaning erudite knowledge in the sense of some intellectual reality that might puff Jesus up. This is not what John is saying. What John is saying is that Jesus had knowledge which came through experience. Jesus knows because of his experience that his hour is coming. He knows because of experience that he had been given all things into his hands. He knew by way of experience that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. The knowledge that John is speaking about is Jesus being God. Jesus being God. Every one of those phrases indicates that reality. Jesus knows everything. Jesus Christ is God. And because he's God, he knew these things in the past. And he knew they would have continuing results in time. So this speaks about Christ's state of mind at the time. Here is Christ about to face the very moment which he would be arrested and crucified. And in his state of mind is this reality of all that he knows and he wants to teach us about love from it. Why? Because it would be easy for us to write off here in our own minds. This is what we say sometimes. Well, He's God. He's deity. Right? We say... Well, he could do this kind of love in this way with all of that facing him in that moment of time in the worst day of his life uh, other than the day which, come, which is coming. He's facing this. He knows it's coming. It, 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 he's God. It's any wonder that he would reach out and love his own. And that would be a fine excuse for us until you read verse 15. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. It would be nice for us to say, well, Jesus, of course, you're God. So, of course, you knew those things. Of course, you had this experiential knowledge of the trouble to come, that what might come into your life was going to be very difficult in those moments. But you're God, after all. No wonder you did this thing. You're supernaturally overcoming all of that. Certainly he would have never said, I give you this as an example if that was the case. see, we cannot just simply sweep this aspect of of the mindset of Jesus Christ under our own little theological framework and hide it there and just say he was God and in essence don't expect that of me. When the difficult days come for me, when life gets struggling for me, don't expect me at all to love others like you've loved. Don't expect that of me. Well, that's not what we can say. He was and is our example. And so John is demonstrating to us that love in action begins with a godly mindset. With the things we know about God with the things we know about our condition in Christ, with our understanding of all of those things. In fact, is this not what Romans chapter 12 says? To renew your mind? To not let yourself be conformed to to the ways of the world, to the thinking of the world, to the system of the world, but have yourself transformed by the renewing of your mind? Jesus Christ is our example. So John is demonstrating that. Christ-like love is a demonstration of what we truly believe concerning God. Did you hear that? Christ-like love is a demonstration of what we truly believe concerning God. When we don't love each other, then we don't truly understand what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Because even though Jesus knew, and even though Jesus knew divinely and yet fully from a human perspective that His hour was was numbered on this earth, He continues to love. Even though He knew Divinely, what no one else at that table knew. He knew sitting there at the table was Judas. He knew intimately that he was the one who was going to betray him. Jesus knew that. Jesus was the one, by the way, who would have dispatched Satan himself to go and enter into Judas as the Creator God. He knew divinely what no one else knew at that table. And yet he loved. Even though he knew that his death would bring difficulty in the hearts of his followers. Even though he knew that the trouble ensuing that would come would bring difficulty and trouble to all those who were following him. And some would even deny him to the point of of severe, severe repentance. Weeping. He also knew that there was no greater relationship than the one with the Father. That He was the one who had come from the Father. He was the one who was going back to the Father. There was no greater relationship than that one and it was out of that knowledge that His love flowed. In fact, in John 17, He he says that, "I, I, I want them, Father, to know the kind of relationship that you and I have. I want my own to know the love relationship that we have while, because they, I want them to be in that. If I go over to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. The writer of Hebrews says this about our Savior. how Jesus is the example to us in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. In other words, just like those who have gone before us in the faith, let us lay aside the encumbrances like they laid aside the encumbrances and the sin which so easily entangles us, and what? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus... What is the description of Jesus? He is the author and perfecter of faith. In other words, he's the one who began it. He's the one who granted it to you. And he's the one who keeps you and perfects it all along. He is the author and the perfecter of faith who, this amazes me, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus is sitting there in John chapter 13 with the disciples knowing that His hour has come, knowing that Judas was going to betray Him, knowing that He had left the Father and knowing that He was going back to the Father. And the writer of Hebrews says, he describes that as a joy. The joy that's set before Him. He endures the cross. Despises the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him. You want to love the same way. You want to be like Christ. You want to fulfill what Jesus commands in John 13, verse 34 and 35. Then consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You see, Jesus Christ understood the relationship And it was that knowing that fueled His love. So we are exhorted to follow the same path based upon our knowledge of God. Fix your eyes on Him. Consider Him, Hebrews says. In other words, the outworking of love for us begins in our minds as we remember our relationship with God, remember all that we have been given by God, remember who we are in Christ, and we look to Jesus Christ. What Jesus did, we do. It begins then when we realize and recognize who we are. Not in comparison to another man but who we are in comparison to Christ. Here's how Paul says it. Philippians chapter 2. Very familiar passage to us. Paul encouraging the Philippian believers how they could love one another. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being, what, of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, be like-minded in your thinking about Jesus Christ and who He is and all that you have in Him and drive in that direction and do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Do nothing for yourself and only for yourself. But, that but there is a strong contrast in the original language. It is a strong adversative. But with humility of mind. You see that? Starts in your mind. You're never going to be humble in action until you're first humble in your mind before God. You start there. Voluntary submission. That's what humility is. A voluntary submission in your own mind. You know who you are. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Well, how do I do that? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude was that? Well, although he existed in the form of God, John 13 says he knew he was from God and he knew he was going back to God. He existed in the form of God, but he didn't regard that as something to be held on to in and of his own self. He emptied himself. That emptying was a taking on. He took on the form of a bondservant and it was made in the likeness of men. He, he emptied himself. It, it, the self-emptying was a, was a self-taking on of humanity. humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So his father highly exalts him, bestows upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You see, this is where the demonstration of love begins. It begins with us looking into the face of Christ. It begins with us here in John chapter 13 and seeing who Jesus Christ was and who he's, what He's facing and what He knows in a, in a perfect knowledge, and yet He still removes Himself, rises from supper, and lays aside His garments and takes a towel and girds Himself like He's the servant of the house. Love begins with us looking into the face of Christ. It begins in spite, like Christ, of our deserved position. In spite of Christ's right to know all things. In spite of that. In spite of Him having every right to control everything. Christ still abandoned His sovereign position. Came to earth and accepted a servant's place. Approached you and I, who are sinful people. And John 13 says he adopts a selfless posture. Comes down from the Father and adopts a selfless posture and says, It's not about me. And he expresses love. This is. I don't think it's a mistake, by the way, that John mentioned Satan in our text. During the Supper, verse 2, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. I don't think it's a mistake. Satan is the great contrast of what love doesn't do. This is Satan's what love doesn't do. Jesus is what love does do. Satan is the antithesis to God. Love is based upon a knowledge of who we are before God. Pride. Pride is based upon a knowledge of who we are at the expense of God. Say, so why do you say that? Well, Satan's way is described for us in Isaiah chapter fourteen. Just listen to what it says. Isaiah says in chapter fourteen, "How art." Thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down from the ground which weakens the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Five times, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And in the end, it's a claim to be like God. I will be like God. Much like what we are learning in our study of Romans in the morning. So too here, when God is rejected, real love and real peace cannot be found. It's not there. And in the end, it only leads to destruction. It says in Isaiah, in verse 15 of that chapter, you shall, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. In the end, that's the place. The place of destruction. In other words, you may think you are doing what is right. Right. You may think you're you're doing what is the right thing to do by going in that direction and by serving yourself at the expense of God. You may think that's the right thing, but it is only right in your own eyes. And in the end, it only leads to eternal pain. I was thinking about this passage in light of conflicts that we find ourselves in so much in society and life. What would happen? I cannot help but think of the reformation that would take place within a relationship if this principle were applied. I cannot help but think what would take place between two individuals. And someone may say, well, I'm going to be taken advantage of if I'm going to do that. Maybe... Maybe I'm not going to get what I want in life. Maybe the desires of my life will not will not come to fruition. But if you died for those things, if you died to those things for the sake of Christ, if you left your dreams and aspirations simply so that you could express your love as Christ showed love, I wonder what would happen within the relationship. I wonder what would happen by way of reconciliation in families, in our society, in Christian homes that have been torn apart because someone refused to yield themselves before God. Someone refused to get up and lay aside their own things and take on A servant's place. But rather instead they took up the way of Satan and exalted themselves. Didn't entrust themselves to the Father. Didn't look to Christ who works all things according to His will and His pleasure. I wonder about that transforming effect. That would take place within the body of Christ if we would lovingly serve one another like that. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, when we try to love by our own strength, when we try to love in our own ways, not the way God has shown us to love, it will never work. It will never work. Luke tells us in Luke 22 that while all this was going on in the upper room, that there was a dispute going on between the disciples. Jesus is doing this and he's going around to one another. There's a dispute going on in the room. And you know what the dispute's about? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Maybe that's what prompted Jesus to give this graphic demonstration of what it means to love. We don't know that. Maybe that's maybe that's why he got up. But what we do know is that this kind of transforming love will only be done by us and will only be done through us if we are His children. This is the expression of those who know Christ. Because Jesus says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. will only happen as if we are his children and we keep our eyes on him and take our eyes off ourself. And like Hebrews said, place them on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Love demonstrated. It's as far as we're getting. Love demonstrated. I don't want to add something else on there until we get that right. Right? We need to have love demonstrated. Christ here is 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 about to to launch into this. Here it is. All the privilege, all the things deserved to him, all that he could set up and say I'm not doing that because A, B, C, I'm God. And he doesn't. Sets all that aside. None of that matters. He just wants to teach us love. Love so amazing, that's what the song says. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my what? My all. The demands. Well, we'll jump into the other ones starting next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Lord, I trust these things have been helpful for us just as we really scratch the surface and begin to see the, the plant break through the surface, if you will. Lord, help us look intently in these things and see the expression of Jesus Christ on our behalf so that we might express love the same way, whether that means serving someone, or whether that means rebuking and exhorting, whatever that means, the expression of love that you show us here is a monumental changer, if we would just do it. Lord, help us to do that by your grace. Help us not to look to ourselves, but always look to your word, to apply it to our own lives as we are loving others. That your name would be praised so that you would be glorified. Use us as your people in each other's lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.